Well, we have come up on the Easter season. We're in the month of April, and it's a couple more weeks yet before we celebrate Easter Sunday. And um, I always like to take that month before Easter and spend on the theme of the Easter season. And there are many times where I would spend the entire time speaking more on the death of Christ and then Easter Sunday deal with the resurrection. And I'm kind of turning it a little bit and I'm going to spend the whole month on the resurrection of Christ. And um, your study in the book of James, chapter 5, you just have to be patient. And be patient. It's coming. I know, I found out that even works in Israel. So, um, for those who were there this past week or so and found out that with all those people being patient was a good idea too. Uh, I thought that was great. We're, we're starting to uh, find applications in lots of places. And you probably are too. Uh, we still need that. And prayer is essential. And so we're not on vacation. All right? Continue to practice those things we have learned. And we will be back to that theme uh, right after our Easter uh, study together. But we are going to especially emphasize on one little phrase that you've sung so many times, up from the grave. What a very significant phrase that is. I'd like to study the ramifications of the resurrection. That's the subtitle to what we are going to do here. And I encourage you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In verse number 14. Now in this study, there is an incredible chapter that this one verse 14 is is seated in. And if we get the time, we're going to work on that too. But for today, I just pulled out the one verse and I read it to you. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. That's our verse that we are going to use to go into many, many different views of the ramification of the resurrection. So let's ask the Lord's help as we start. Heavenly Father, Your Word's in front of us, and we thank You so much for it. We pray, Lord, as we study this theme of the resurrection of Christ, that you will bring it home to our hearts in all the ways that you desire. For there's no way I can meet or understand all the different applications that will resonate in the hearts of each one here in this room and each one that comes during the course of this next month. But I do know, Lord, that you're at work in us. And as we study these things, you challenge us with it. And you bring it to a place where we apply it to our lives and it draws us ever closer to you. And we're all in need of that. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you will do what you promised to do. That your word will not return void, but it will accomplish what you set out for it to do. And that we eagerly anticipate as we open it up, as we learn from it today. 
Hit your mark today, Lord, in our hearts. Give us that which we can grasp, understand, and may it be written in permanent ink. For we love to speak of you and learn of you. We want to live for you. So challenge us today with your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I just read to you 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Hear it again, please, in slow motion. Ready? God. That's a great way to start the verse, isn't it? You know who the subject is, don't you? He's the one who's active in this verse. Understand that. That's important. God raised up. Now, I know it's a verb. You see it all the time in your text. That's literal. That's actual. That is reality. There is no maybe in your translation. If there is, get a new one. There is no maybe. There's not even the word possibly. It's not a fable. It's not a trick. It's not a gimmick. It's not a sleight of hand maneuver. It's not exaggerated. It's not embellished. It's not a sales pitch. It is a fact in history. It's a fact in theology. It is a fact in Scripture. God raised up the Lord. That's what it says, right? That's what you see, right? Keep going. Not only has God raised up the Lord, but He, that's the same God, with the exact same attributes and abilities, with the exact same motion, the exact same power, the exact everything, He will, or you might have shall, either way I'm going to make a point. That's not a might. That is not I hope so. That is not to be doubted. That is not to be debated. He will do what? You see it? Raise us up. Same verb. Same verb. Related to his son as related to us. Except one thing. You say, what's that? Well, if you were looking at the two Greek words side by side right now, you'd say, but this one's a little longer. It has more letters. It had a preposition attached to it, which intensified it. I don't know what that means to you, but I say, wow. He raised us up. You've got to kind of add your voice to a higher degree there. You've got to give it a little more punch when you say it, because it's intensified in the text. It's the same verb, but stronger yet. God raised us up also. Both. You've got a King James out there? You see it. Both. God raised up Him. God raised us up. 
through his power. Through his power. Now, that's not because the pastor said so, but because God said so. That is quite a verse, isn't it? When you stop and look at it and say, what is he saying to us? Well, there are two facts here. And I'm going to say it simply for you this morning. I do this on purpose. There are two facts in this verse I want to solidify in your mind. I want them solidified in your heart. That you will know that this this sermon series is not just something to fill time for the next couple of weeks. The statement is, you will be resurrected by the Lord. If you should die on this earth, and you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be resurrected by God. You hear it? You will be. Just as sure as God brought Jesus himself back to life at his resurrection. Here's what I love about theology. And you can test this if you want. Go through all the epistles. Mark all the verses that speak of what God's going to do for you. What God has done for you. What God is doing for you. And just about in every single context, every single paragraph, sometimes every single verse, there is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? Because there are ramifications for the resurrection, and it involves you and me. And he wants you to be so sure of it, that you have it based on a fact. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's important. It is vitally important for us as believers. Because as I've already started here, this is not about something I really hope might happen. I'm praying that it could. But, you know, it's kind of like a risky thing to hope. It's not that way at all. It's based on the reality. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And because he did, you too shall live. That's what we're going to study here, because these two facts stand right before you. Are you ready for them? Fact number one. God raised Jesus from the dead. Number one. God raised Jesus from the dead. Fact number two. God will raise you as well. Isn't that what you just saw? Isn't that what the verse just said? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is significant to our faith. This is not optional theology, folks. This is not some, you know, amendment to tack on the end of it. Some, you know, additional piece that, you know, you pay extra for or something like that. This is essential to our faith. This is, this is where it starts. For us, practically speaking, in every single way. Because without the resurrection, let me say this, you have nothing. Without it, you have nothing. I have nothing. Think about that for a minute. It's that important. We have nothing apart from this. The resurrection, Charles Spurgeon said, 
is a fact better attested than any event recorded in any history, whether ancient or modern. That's his statement a hundred some years ago. The resurrection is a fact better attested than any event recorded in any history, whether ancient or modern. Now, I appreciate that comment. But I do not base my belief on the resurrection as just a recorded event in history. I believe it because it is a recorded fact of Scripture. And I want to say something very carefully, what I want to talk to you about today. Because the most significant passage, perhaps, in all the Bible, of the fact of the resurrection, is here in 1 Corinthians. What chapter? 15. Walk over there for a minute with me. Chapter 15. Years ago, we studied this passage together. It took us a long time. Do you think I could sum it up in one sermon? (laughs) We'll find out. Let's take a quick look at this. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Yes, we're starting in verse 1, but don't panic. I know there's 58 verses. We're not going to cover all of them right now. Paul says this at the beginning of the chapter. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. Boy, this sounds important, doesn't it? If you hold fast the words which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Do you see that phrase? Not according to history. I love history, but he didn't say that. Not according to eyewitnesses, and he's going to give you lots of those, and he didn't say it that way, but according to Scripture. Verse 4, And that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, what? According to the Scriptures. Twice he said it. Don't miss it. It's very important, isn't it? He says, now, we can add to that eyewitnesses. Yes, we can. We can prove it's a historical event. Yes, we can. But his bedrock foundation was the Scriptures. He says in verse 5, well, he appeared to Peter, Cephas, you might have. He appeared to the twelve disciples, yes. He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Boy, there's a lot of eyewitnesses there. And some of them, most of them, matter of fact, are still alive, he says. Most of them remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So you can call up any number of these. You can get 50 witnesses of this fact. It's easy enough to do. They're all out there still. A few are gone, but most are still there. And he came to me, verse number 8, Paul says. He came to me, least of all. I was as to one untimely born. He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles. And I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. 
whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. You say, Paul, you're on a rabbit trail. No, he's not. He's just simply saying, I'm a witness too. But what it comes down to is what we tell you from Scripture, what we preach. It comes down to that. And he goes on to add this. Some have questioned the fact of a resurrection. And what do you lose if you don't believe it can happen? Look at verse 12. He gets right to the heart. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, stop for a minute. Who's Paul preaching to? Who's he writing to? The church of Corinth. Are they believers? Yes, they are. Because the first couple of chapters point that out. That's why Paul was so upset with these people. He broke a lot of pens writing this letter. Because he was upset with them. I always said the best way to understand 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, is to scream it at somebody. Because <laughs> that's what he was saying the whole time. That's not how you do it! Alright? Anyway, side note. Paul's writing to believers. And there are believers sitting in that chair, that pew, that church, whatever you want to call it. And they don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. He says, what? Are you kidding me? How could it be possible that you could sit up there and think, well, there is no resurrection of the dead. What have you done? You've, you've gutted it. You've stripped away the most essential part of the gospel message. You have left it with a weak, flimsy, spineless, useless thing. Because you took out the best part. He says this, Verse 13, if there is no resurrection from the dead, like some of you seem to think, and I, 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 I preach it this way, I share it with this way, because I hope I'm not talking to anybody here, but if I am, listen carefully. Alright? If somebody in this room does not believe there's a resurrection from the dead, listen carefully. If you do not believe there's a resurrection from the dead, then Christ has never been raised. That would be impossible. He says in verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Vain. Empty. It's those chocolate bunnies that are hollow on the inside. They're the most disappointing things to me in all the world. <laughs> I want them full of chocolate. It's the word empty in the Greek. Hollow on the inside. Oh, it's got a great outside, but there's nothing to it. He says, our preaching is nothing if there's no resurrection. You're paying the pastor for nothing. Frightful idea, isn't it? The teaching is nothing. If that wasn't true, why do we exist as a church? Why do we meet on Sunday mornings? Why do you have somebody come up here and open up God's Word and share it with you? If it's just hollow anyway. He says, you take Christ's resurrection out of the picture and you have nothing to preach about. Nothing. He says, by the way, if my preaching is vain, so is your faith. Your faith is based on nothing. Do you know it? 
without a resurrection from the dead, you have nothing for your faith. You want to be miserable? Have faith in nothing. That's what it would be. Moreover, he says in verse 15, we are found to be false witnesses of God. We're lying to you every time we stand up here. Because we say God raised him from the dead and he was never risen. Because you say there is no resurrection. So we're just lying. And you're buying it every single week. You believe a lie. We preach a lie. We go along pretty happy that way, don't we? But it means nothing without the resurrection. So he reiterates it in verse 16. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And what does that mean? If Christ has not been raised, verse 17 says, your faith is worthless. That's even stronger than the last thing. He said it was empty before. Now he says it's worthless. It's useless. It has no power. It can't do anything. It just sits there. You may look good. You may embellish it a thousand different ways, but it has no value. And it can't do a thing for you. You want a good example of what it looks like? Take your car, wax it, make it look as pretty as can be. Take the motor out. It looks good, but it goes nowhere. That's what happens when you take the resurrection out of the story. Your faith is worthless. You've invested a lot in it, but I'm sorry, it has no profit to you. None. And here's the sad thing, and then in verse 17, and you're still in your sins. There has been no remedy for your sins. There has been no solution. There has been no forgiveness. There is nothing regarding your sins. You still have them. And you're still accountable for them. And you're going to be judged for them because you're still under God's wrath. Wow. Are you willing? Are you willing to give up the resurrection knowing that? I mean, most people would say, you know, there's a few things here. You know, I, maybe I could part with that and still get along. But can you really, can you really go through life thinking that your sins will never be forgiven? Do you want to? I don't think you do. Paul says, you're still in your sins. And then he says this other sad statement in verse 18, and it's sad. Then those who have fallen asleep in Jesus have perished. Your grandmother, maybe. Your grandfather. Your mom, your dad. Maybe your spouse. Maybe one of your children. They died in Jesus. You have hope, don't you? You have hope. Why do we stand around and say, well, we'll see him again someday? Why do we say that? Because we believe it, don't we? We believe that those who have died, who have fallen asleep, I love that phrase, fallen asleep in Jesus, someday when we join together, when Christ comes, we shall be with them, we shall see them. Oh, what a reunion that will be. Aren't you looking forward to that? You've got loved ones there, don't you? I do too. How would you like to think that that was all useless, hopeless, pointless? What a horrific idea. 
those who you love have perished. They're gone. They're just gone. Why? Because you won't believe in the resurrection. So let's start stripping it of everything it does. And in verse number 15, if, if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, if we're going through all the motions of this life only, saying we hope in Christ, we hope in Christ, but there's nothing beyond this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. What a charade we're doing. It's not real. That's a sad section, isn't it? Wow, is that hard. I am so glad that Paul didn't put down the pen there and say, I give up and walk away. Wouldn't that be the end of a horrid chapter? We all sit there and, and wonder, what, what do we do now? I like the next verse, do you? I love the way it starts. Because he goes back to the fact. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. There it is. That word but makes all the difference to me. All those things we just talked about do not exist. In other words, Christ has been raised. Our preaching has value. Your faith has value. The witness I give and the witness you believe is true. Christ has been raised and your faith is profitable. Your Sins are forgiven. And those who have fallen asleep in Jesus are still alive in Jesus. You're not to be pitied. (laughs) You're not to be pitied. Because Christ has now been raised from the dead. Verse number 23. Speaking of the resurrection of Christ, each in his own order. Christ is the first fruit, yes. After those after that, those who are Christ, who belong to Christ, at His coming. That's exactly what He just said in chapter 6, verse 14. Different wording, but same thing. Because God raised Christ from the dead, even so He will raise you up also by that same power. That's what it's saying right here in this verse. Christ has been risen, He's the first fruits. You In Christ, you belong to Christ, you will follow. That's a guarantee. That's a significant thing. I love verse number 26. The last enemy that will be abolished is what? Death. You know what? It's coming. It's coming. The day will come, if you read the whole context. The day will come when God says, okay, let's wrap all this up. Let's put the period at the end. Let's say it's all finished. The last enemy is done. It's gone. Oh, I can't wait. That's coming. I believe it with all my heart. You know why? Number one, God said so. Number two, it's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those are enough for me. I don't know about you. Skip all the way down to verse number 50. Watch this. This is fun. Now there's a lot of good things in between. I know. (laughs) We don't have time for all that. It took me like six months to do this last time. (laughs) Now I say this, brethren. 
that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable put on the imperishable. In other words, you've got to change before you get there. Because your body is not fit for heavenly circles. It's just not fit. God will have to change you. And you know what? He's good at it. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised up imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, this mortal must put on immortality, and when that has happened, when the perishable has put on the imperishable, when the mortal has put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Wonderful. Wow. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, or grave, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin. We know it too well. The power of sin is a law. Oh, we feel that. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he was raised, we will be too. Okay? I wanted to make a point. Did I get it across? Okay. This is important. This is important. Listen very carefully to this. The point I make is this. As believers in the truth of Scripture, particularly as believers in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our resurrection should not, our resurrection should not be a thing of surprise. It should not be a thing of surprise. I don't know what it's going to be like when that trumpet sounds and we're called out. What's your words going to be? Wow, it's true! Surprise! I don't think so. It shouldn't be that way. What's it going to sound like? What's it going to be like? You see, is your faith set on a phrase, I'll believe it when I see it? Are you from Missouri? Show me state. Prove it. Maybe you've got a touch of Thomas in you. You remember him? What was his desire? Oh, I'll believe it if I could put my finger in that mark on his hand. Prove it to me. Prove it to me. If you only believe based on what is tangible here, there's not much you can work with, is there? You've never seen Jesus, have you? You've never put your finger in his hand or in his side, you have you? Peter says to those who believe like you do, that's an amazing thing, that you should love him and you've never seen him? Peter says we were with him and we struggled to believe him. And here, you've never seen him. You love him? That's amazing faith. But too many, I'm afraid, too many want the tangible. Too many of us say, I'll believe it when I see it. Too many of us say, just show it to me and then I'm going to be sure of that. I want to take you to a very, very interesting passage. Many years ago, I'll tell you where it is in a minute, alright? Many years ago, during an Easter sermon series I was teaching through, 
I was working on the last couple chapters of Matthew, 27 and 28. So head for 27, all right? Matthew 27 and 28. And I came up to a very interesting section, and it's in Matthew 27, and it's verse number 45. Now, literally, I'm just reading along, reading along through the passage as I'm teaching it. And it says in Matthew 27, verse 45, Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. What's going on? What's the big picture here? What's happening? Jesus is on the cross, right? And Matthew's recording his words that he was declaring on the cross. So I'm going through it, just as I'm going through it with you right now. And I'm just reading this off, and I said, uh, verse 48, immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let's see whether Elijah will come down and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had been who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. And I was just going through that, and suddenly from the front row, this guy says, "Whoa!" This guy has been in the church his whole life. He's an elderly man. He's a farmer. You know, he's a great guy. I loved him. Great man. Just a, a quiet soul. Rarely ever said anything. Never said comments. And suddenly he says, I've never seen that in all, all my whole life. And I said, what? He says, look at verse 52. The tombs were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they have entered the holy city and appeared to many. He's like, what is that? Isn't that a great verse? You want to know what to do with it? He sit there and say, okay, what is that? Have you ever seen that before? Any woes in here? Woo, what is that? Well, I tell you this. I can't explain it all. I really can't. I can read it again to you if you want. When Jesus died, it says... The tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints. Now putting it in perspective, I'm thinking Old Testament saints, aren't you? They're Old Testament saints. This isn't the church age yet. So, Old Testament saints. Many bodies of the saints. That means they died. Maybe recently. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to speculate for a minute. How long were they dead? I don't know. Did this include Noah? <laughs> Did it include Abraham? I, I don't think so, because it seems to only have happened in the Jewish cemetery, because they came out of that and walked into the city, right? Abraham wasn't buried in Jerusalem. Neither was Noah, for that matter. So, some who were local, maybe some who were recent, 
I don't know how that worked, but they were saints. It says, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now, as that's being recorded, he's using the exact same word we're studying in 1 Corinthians. That's something God can do, right? Yeah, yeah, he can. Is this possible? Yes. Can God do it? Yes. Why? Well, that's a big question. Who? Well, that's a big question. If we're trying to find identities. But it goes on to say, coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Okay, let me get this straight. When he died, they came up out of the tombs. When he rose again three days later, they came out of the cemetery. What were they doing for three days? I don't know. But it says, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. It appears, I'm going to speculate again, they waited for three days to walk out of that cemetery and go into the city. They were waiting for the resurrection of Christ. It appears. Now, what a surprise that had to have been when old Uncle Joe walked back into the kitchen. Do you... Try to imagine what it would be like to be the family of one of these people. Don't tell the insurance agent. Alright? They might charge you extra for this one. This guy's back. You've already collected. How many miracles does it take to get somebody to believe the truth? The land was black from darkness. Didn't we see that? Yes. In the middle of the day. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's an amazing thing. Someday we'll study that. An earthquake occurred at that time. The rocks were breaking in half. The tombs were being opened. And the dead were coming back to life, going into the city and appearing to people. And you say, boy, if we only had one more miracle, that would be a perfect seven. Is that what it takes for us to believe? Do we have to have a miracle to prove it? Jesus said there was a rich man. And he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. And he joyously lived out the splendor in every day. And there was a poor man named Lazarus who was laid at his gates, covered with sores. And longing to be fed with the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, this rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away. And Lazarus, there at his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham! Have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may touch. Just get the touch of his finger in water and touch my tongue. I'm in agony in this place. And Abraham said, Child, remember that during the days of your life you received your good things. And likewise Lazarus bad things. And now that he has been comforted here and you're in agony. 
besides all that, between us, there's this giant chasm fixed. So that all who wish to come over here to you is not able, and that none may cross from there to us. And he says, then I beg you, Father, that you send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. In order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, they have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, no, no. Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they're going to repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and to the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if somebody rises from the dead. Do you understand the importance Jesus just gave to Scripture and the events of the resurrection there? They have Moses and the prophets. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded. It doesn't matter how many miracles you set before them. You could split rocks, you could make the sky dark, you could bring dead to life and drag them into the city. And none of that will change a single soul. Because they don't believe God's word. As we examine this passage over the next few weeks, one thing is going to be utmost and most important. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Upon that, we rest everything we believe. The Bible says, For God has not only raised the Lord, but He also will raise us up through His power. What is the ramification of that? That single point today. Ramification. I had to dig it out of the dictionary just to make sure I got the right definition for you. Most of the time it's used negatively, by the way. I find that very interesting. Most of the time they use it in a negative way. But here's a, a good positive definition. The ramifications are the broader effects that fan out into the world from one situation that kicks it all off. That wasn't Webster. You could tell, couldn't you? Upon what do we rest our hope that we will rise someday? According to that same verse, our resurrection is based on the same thing God did at the resurrection of Christ. The same thing. If Christ did not raise, then we won't either. If Christ did raise, then so will we. See it? It's that straightforward. Jesus wasn't surprised that he rose from the dead. Didn't he tell them to expect it? He even said this one day, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asked a very important question, do you believe this? Do you believe this? That's scripture, folks. That's what has been recorded for us to see, for us to believe. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is significant to our faith. Significant to our faith. Without that resurrection, we have 
nothing. We have nothing. Think about that. It's that important. Apart from this, we have nothing. What have you set your hope on? What have you set your hope on? Now you've got to talk to your heart for a while, okay? Have a good conversation this afternoon. What do I believe? And upon what do I believe it? Why do I believe that? If you come up with any answer but the scripture, then re-examine what you just said. Because this is what God has said. I believe it with all my heart. Are you convinced? I believe it with all my heart. This is true. And I hope you do too. Heavenly Father, you know every single person in this room. And our relationship with you is not a surprise to you. You know it very well. Sometimes, Lord, we go through all kinds of uh, maneuvers to, to suggest to other people that we're believers. Sometimes we put up a pretty good front to make it look like we're, we're among the few, the chosen. We wear the garments, we sing the songs, we, we carry the Bible, we do all these things. This examination this morning is on what we believe. And our belief is based on Scripture. And Scripture is what you have said. And it records for us more than just history. It records the facts the facts of what you have done and what you will do. And we can believe that with all our heart. And if there's somebody here this morning who doesn't, somebody who just became aware that they don't, and they need Jesus, draw them to yourself, for you are the only one who can save. And I pray that you do. Show them again their need for a Savior. Show them again of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Show them again of the victory that we know because of him. And Lord, I thank you so much for it all. I thank you, Lord, for coming to this earth and dying for us. And I thank you for all that you went through. And it's hard for us to imagine it all. But the humiliation and the torture and the weight of our sin that you took for us. What an amazing thing you've done. How you took that all the way to a cross and even took that to death and was buried and rose again. And what a change it's made in us forever. Thank you, Lord, for it. Thank you. Thank you so much for what you have done. We praise you for that. And I pray, Lord, that it would be the same thing for every heart in this room today. We praise you for that. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.